In this episode of What's the Story, Old Glory, we take our listeners through a timeline between now and November 2024 for the US presidential election. And in past glory, we talk about America's shortest serving president. Hi everyone and welcome to the latest episode of What's the Story, Old Glory. I'm Todd Muller uh, in a beautiful uh, Tauranga Saturday morning uh, and with me is my good friend and colleague Elizabeth Sol. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, yeah, it's um, a bit cold down south. We've actually had unseasonable snow. So it was snowing here yesterday even though it's nearly summer. Um, that was a bit of a surprise to us. Um, snow snowing in in uh october brilliant yeah that's right <laughs> so uh elizabeth we have decided that based on the uh, many questions that we've had from our audiences that we should actually spend a moment in this podcast reflecting on uh, the election timetable between now and election day next year because as we've alluded to previously on our podcast lots and lots of events occur between now and election day next november and uh you're going to lead us through this which is going to be an exciting morning for us yeah that's right so we've had um some listener questions we've now got listeners all around the world which is fantastic we're really grateful to that our audience is growing and that we're getting questions from people who are paying attention to to the u.s election hopefully thanks to this podcast so uh, We've um, had a question from um, Belinda, and she wants to know more about the process around uh, how presidents get elected and finds it all a bit confusing, particularly when we look at the um, the fact that we've already got, you know, um, candidates campaigning, but the election itself is still over a year away, which just seems like an inordinately long time particularly in comparison to a country like New Zealand when, well, you've been involved with campaigning. How long does, does a campaign start prior to an, a general election? Well, yeah, you're quite right in terms of the comparison. I mean, we do some uh, candidate selections in the sort of six to nine months prior to the election uh, with, with people who are not um, standing again. Obviously, that process is simple, but if it's an open seat, um, you know, both of the uh, all of the political parties nominate their local electorate candidates. So that's a, a little bit of a process. Uh, and then, of course, you finalise your list a few weeks out from the election. But really, the election campaign proper is the last sort of five or six weeks. Uh, and I don't know what it's like in America, but in New Zealand, most people are tuned out about the election until the signs go up and people think, all right, must be election time. I start thinking about it. And you certainly know it when you go door knocking during the course of a three-year term. Most people are uh, quite disinterested in the political process, really, uh, until the last sort of hurdle, the last month or two. Where in America, mm. as you say, Elizabeth, it seems to be the never-ending campaign, and particularly when it comes to, um, you know, electing a president. I mean, they've been those candidates, uh, um, particularly the Republican candidates, um, they have been running for months and months and months, and the election is still over a year away. So how does it sort of distill down from all those Republican candidates that we've discussed previously, seeing them on stage, doing their debates? How does it actually distill down to a particular nominee on the Republican side? And, and what happens on the Democrat side? You know, what, um, 
does uh, Biden just automatically get it or what happens there? These are the sorts of questions that we're going to um, step through today for our listeners and hopefully provide some clarity for it. Yeah, and so it, the, it does make more sense when you can see the entire timeline laid out as to why it takes so long, why it starts so early and why, like you say, the Republican candidates have already sunk tens of millions of dollars into their campaign already. Um, and they may not even get on the on the ballot to be to become president. So um, like many things in American politics, it largely comes back to the fact that we've got a country, a federal country made up of semi-autonomous, semi-independent states. Um, and so every single state goes through a process to determine candidates. And that gets and that takes weeks and months. And not only the states, we've got overseas territories as well. Uh, we have a two party system, although in general there are third party candidates, but in the main, two parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. And so what we're seeing with the Republicans at the moment is they have a um, a field of uh, candidates all hoping to become the Republican Party's nominee for president. So it's like what you talk about in New Zealand, where you have people, the, the, the local electorate party, determine who is going to be the candidate for that electorate. So with president, the party has to determine who are they going to put forward, the one person that each party is going to put forward to be on the ballot next November to become president. And so they have to go through a very long process in every single state and every single overseas territory to determine who they want their candidate to be. That's a very good uh, connection actually with what um, happens uh, locally here for us in terms of our electorates. That's a good way of thinking about it actually, because in the um, MMP election we've just had, you have two votes, one for the party, one for the local electorate. Uh, and we have 72, I think, 71 general electorate seats, mm -hmm. and the party organisations, regardless of, you know, what flavour you are, Labour, you know, New Zealand First, Greens, National, the party organisations in those electorates have a process that they follow to choose who they want to be on that, uh, to be their candidate. And, and I mean, it all happens here is just, you know, part of our system and, and a very small country. But if you look at it through the lens of America being really almost 50 countries pulled together mm. under the United States of America, that, that that's a helpful um, uh, insight, I think, Elizabeth, to sort of picture why America does these things like they do. Um, yeah, you know, and it's also very public. They do it on a big stage, whereas yes. in New Zealand it tends to be not behind closed doors, but it's each party, as you say, has their own method of selecting a candidate, and it's done pretty low key. I mean, that's pretty pretty typical of New Zealand, really. You know, we do things a bit bit low key, um, and so it it happens in in community halls and things um, around our country. Whereas in in America, it's writ large. It's done on the big st stage on a big screen with a lot of money behind it, and so it it, it attracts a lot of attention. And it's very um, flamboyant, probably not the right word, but it's 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 big compared to how it's done here. It's and so the system. Yeah, yeah, lots of noise. So the systems that 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 
that are used by, and as, as I say, we'll stick to the main parties, we'll stick to the Republicans and Democrats at this stage. The, the system that they use is that they go through a system of primaries and caucuses in each state and overseas territory. And so the primaries and the caucuses are used to determine which candidate that state is going to put forward um, for nomination at the party convention, which gets held midway through next year, 2024, before the actual full campaigning for the presidential election starts. And what's interesting is that through the primaries and the caucuses, um, the people that vote are not actually voting for a person. They're voting for, as in not voting for a candidate, they're voting for a person who will vote for their candidate uh, when it comes to the convention time. So it's all about delegates representing uh, certain viewpoints from within the party, which sounds a bit confusing. And, and we might, we're hoping that in future episode, we'll get a, an expert on the primary and the caucus system to give us a bit more detail about this. Um, but essentially, um, yeah, they're voting for people that will represent their views when it goes to convention time in the future. Okay, Elizabeth, that sounds, uh, that sounds interesting. So how does it, how does someone's walking into a polling booth and they they vote for the candidate they want how does that then transfer into um ultimately a set of delegates uh from that state uh voting in a convention could you just explain to me how that works some states have what they call primary elections and some states have caucuses and i think i'll explain the caucus system first because it helps to explain how this all unfolds in terms of delegates. So the caucus system is the original system that was used to determine who um, got to be on the ballot. And so if you think about it in terms of what was happening in the 1780s when they had the first elections back in the state, in the states back in time, using our Wayback machine, they had to come up with a method of who 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 could do it? This was before electronic voting or anything like that. So literally, they would gather in a place in their local town hall or church hall or school, wherever it might be, and they would have people working for a candidate on their behalf, trying to drum up votes. And the men would gather in this big room, and you would have, say, four candidates um, and there would be a person representing that candidate standing under a sign that says, I represent John Smith. And if you want to rep- if you want John Smith to be your um, to be your representative, literally come and stand with me under my sign. And so the people would all the men would all spread out and say, I support John Smith, I support Joe Bloggs, et cetera, et cetera. And then they would do a count up. Okay, well, who's got the most? people standing underneath their sign um, and you either uh, they would either pick the person that had the most if they had a majority of of the men that were in the room and if they didn't the person with the least would the, the the person that represented the candidate with the least people standing under their sign would say okay I'm bowing out and so those people would then have to go pick another candidate so they would go stand under another sign until you have someone in the room holding a sign that says I support John Smith having the most men gathered around that person holding that sign and they said okay well that means that in this area in this county John Smith has the most support. So the person that represents John Smith gets to go and cast the vote 
on behalf of that county seat. For John Smith, obviously, John because Smith. that because John Smith won in that contest. Uh, this is a brilliant description, and then that happens uh, in school halls and churches uh, and ch and uh, and community uh, halls around each county, uh, and each county does it the same way in a particular state, uh, and then um, that state will have all the delegates that rep that reflected uh, who won. Now I assume. That what happens here is if County A chooses John Smith, County B chooses Joe Bloggs, and County C chooses um, uh, a third person, uh, what happens then? So it depends on state to state uh, as to what the rules are, as to how they determine how many delegates will represent um, the, the votes going to the convention um, at the national level. And so each uh, state has its own rules around who can vote, um, how they determine um, runoffs, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's where it starts to get a bit complicated. And interestingly, um, states like Iowa still have caucuses essentially run in that old town hall way whereby you literally go and stand with the, the organiser of the person that you want to represent you um, in, in that vote. Other states have primaries now, so that's done in a more sort of ballot box type voting system. Um, but yeah, the, the reason why the Iowa caucuses are so exciting is because a, they're first off the rank generally in terms of doing it um, in January, and B, because they do it the old-fashioned way. It's a caucus system where you go to your local school and you and you pick the person, and and they all go and stand under their signs. Last election, the Democrats tried to do it electronically in Iowa, and their app crashed, and it all turned into a bit of a debacle, um, and it took hours and hours and hours, and they ended up having to do it the old-fashioned way, where they literally went and stood in separate corners of an arena, for instance, in Des Moines, um, with the with their shirts on, with Biden, and someone else had Sanders, and someone else had Buttigieg, and people had to literally go and cluster around them, and they did a head count, and that's how they did it. So it's, it's a really interesting system. And then it's played out across every single state, across every single overseas territory like Guam and the Virgin Islands over the course of five months, because we're talking a lot of places um, that have to determine the delegates. Um, and so it takes a long time. And so uh, that's why they say the Republican process, this election started so early is because they have to determine who are going to be the candidates that, that want to um, stand in those states once those primaries and caucuses kick off. So if you go to the first caucus uh, next year, which you have highlighted as Iowa, um, they still have more of a traditional system where everybody, as you said, I mean, they tried t technology last time, didn't work. Are they going to try technology again this time? Or are they still going to go the old fashioned way? I'm not sure. The, the the Republican Party did it still sort of the semi-old-fashioned way. I'm not sure whether how the Democrats are going to do it this time. There is contention around the Democrat primaries. Um, we heard uh, the Ambassador Scott Brown talk about it uh, in our last episode, where there's, there's tension between how each individual state party, so the Democrat Party in Iowa, for instance, or New Hampshire, runs their primary system and the um, timetable 
that the, that the states go in and what the central national democratic national um, convention wants the states to do. So like we have this ongoing tension in America between the federal government and all the individual states, it happens within the parties too. So it, there's, there's a possibility that um, because Joe Biden wanted South Carolina to be the first Democrat primary rather than New Hampshire or Iowa, he may not be on the ballot in those states because the states might say, nope, we're going first. And it, it, it's it's a strange situation, but there is a, a tussle to see who gets to go first. Yeah, and I guess it's because if you are the first out of the blocks in terms of a um, statewide uh competition um, and election, then perhaps you set the theme or trend for how the rest of the country might vote. I just want to quickly go back to the Iowa uh, caucuses. Um, I can remember watching on CNN, I think it was last time, and obviously that was uh, for the Democrat um, race because the Republicans had uh, understandably renominated uh, Trump and Pence to be their candidates. So all the excitement was on the Democrat side. And I can remember when the results came through, um, putting aside the fact that they had the challenges with the uh, electronics and had to go back to people standing in the room, uh, that each, you know, the can't, it was a very uh, split field, right? Mm. Uh, so what, so who gets, you know, in, a, in when it comes to election time in November, if a candidate wins, um, if it's Trump versus Biden, and if Biden wins Iowa uh, in terms of the popular vote on election day, he wins all those states' um, electors. Um, and we'll talk about that um, specific element of the American system in the future. But does that same premise apply that if you get the most votes out of a primary or a caucus that you get all of those delegates, or is it a proportional system? Do you get a proportion of those delegates based on uh, the percentage of the vote you won? I think it's proportional, yeah. Because that's why, because that's why um, the Obama-Clinton race kept going on and on and on, because yeah. uh, they, they kept beating each other, but only by a little bit. And yep. Obama got a little head, you know, got his nose in front. Uh, and, you know, she would win a state, but she'd win it 53%, you know, 55%. He'd get 45%. So to put it simply, she'd get six delegates. He'd, he'd get four. So she'd close yeah. the gap. It, so you know, so the it, states all have different numbers of delegates that go to the convention. And yeah. that's based on population? Yes, it is. Yes. So, yeah. um, so depending on how many votes you get in the primary determines how many delegates go to the convention. And so it can get very close to the wire if you're getting close to convention point and you've got similar numbers of delegates um, going to the convention and voting on for the, for the person that their state has said, this is who we want to be. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it can get very close. Yeah. So, um, one of the ways perhaps of putting this, as I, if I understand you right, is that um, the finish line here is the conventions, yes. uh, the Democratic Convention and the Republic Convention, where all the delegates come together and nominate 
uh, finally their candidate for president and vice president. And right. the critical thing to understand is the delegates that are in the room making that nomination uh, reflect the result of the primary and caucus that has been held in their state. Um, and if it, if that's essentially how that works, isn't it? That's right. And so often it'll, it'll be known beforehand. And so the convention is like, you've been to one before. It's like a big party, isn't it? It is. It is. And um, they do the roll call of delegates. Uh, and so the first of all, what happens is, is each state gets called out and the chairperson of that state's delegates says, yeah, we're from New um, Hampshire and we have certain 20 delegates uh, and they go through that. So that's the roll call, which is a confirmation of the states in the room, or 50 of them, uh, and the delegates delegates present relative to the size of population of that state. Uh, and then, of course, the second part, normally done uh, the following day, is the confirmation of, of each state's results of their primary or caucus. So that's where if um, Biden won New Mexico, that the New Mexico uh, delegation, when it's their turn, they will stand up and say, we give our electoral votes to um, uh, Biden. Because in the primary in New Hampshire, the previous um, summer, uh, he had won their primary election. So has it always been that way, that it's been done with the conventions um, and the roll call and and the states coming forward and, and the representatives, the delegates putting forward um, who, who, the, who, who they're representing in terms of the, the state's votes? No, it's actually a relatively uh, modern, for America, a modern uh, change. Um, certainly earlier on in the last century, uh, it was quite different. In fact, you touched on you know how it evolved from the early uh, American history from the late um, 18th century forward, uh, very much individuals voting um, at uh, conventions. They would turn up and they would decide on the on that day who to support. And so there was a huge amount of horse trading. And mm. yes, they might have had an initial um, a primary or a caucus discussion in their state, but by the time it got to the convention, uh, it, it was very much a very who, who could who could bribe who frankly uh, with all future <laughs> um, uh, jobs and opportunities and it would it would take an extraordinarily uh, long time and sometimes there were uh, conventions that sort of was defied defied history like there was a, a convention in um, 1924. Uh, almost lost to history. Most people don't uh, recall it uh, because they eventually chose, the Democrats eventually chose West Virginian Congressman John W. Davis, uh, who went on to um, uh, lose uh, quite significantly against uh, Calvin Coolidge. Uh, but he was uh, selected after 103 ballots uh, cast over 17 days in New York. Uh, wow. And just to show you that American politics uh, has always had a fair bit of sport in it, 
Uh, <laughs> this is from the New York Times at the time. On the second day of that debacle, antagonisms between the candidates had already reached the point where the 13,000 gallery spectators were, quote, spitting on the delegates, <laughs> uh, screaming, jeering, and waving their fists at one another. Uh, and the New York Times reported, by the time Mr. Davis was nominated, more than 100 delegates had already packed up, gone home, having run out of money, patience, or energy. Uh, wow. And so you know, that's how um, American politics, and it was it was a little bit, Scott Brown was a bit, a lot, he touched on this, it's always been a high energy, high combat sport, right? Mm. And so we look at it in the context of 2023 and think, goodness me, American politics, how how low uh, has it gone in some senses in terms of you know candidates and you know how they interact with each other. But compared to that, a hundred years ago, um, you know, spitting and jeering from the uh, from the from the uh, spectators watching the convention, uh, I think uh, you know it's always it's always been a bit crazy. So. Yeah concept of everyone turning up to a convention in a particular city, all the states turning up with their delegates, uh, and then basically making their own decision on the day based on a whole lot of horse trading, eventually uh, fell out of favour and the states asserted their right to have their particular view heard on the convention floor. And so a way to more formally ensure that happened was to have primaries where um, or caucuses where the individual um, party members could have a say. So, other, you know, the previous model very much driven by the party bosses, the party mm -hmm. machines, those who had reached up into the big powerful roles within the Democratic Party and those who supported the Democratic Party, the same on the Republican side. They wanted to, um, and, and that was seen as just not particularly democratic, favouring small interests and powerful interests, uh, uh, small in size but powerful in muscle. Uh, yep. And so they wanted to bring it out to the people. And so that's why you've seen this change over time where, uh, as you say, individuals can vote for who they want uh, to be the party's nominee and feel very vested in the process. Yeah. And it's interesting that um, the, the different sort of... Um behaviors, characteristics, uh, voting bases within each state forces the candidates to campaign differently and behave differently as well. So Iowa is, is a prime example, being the first, um, because of the way the electorate in Iowa feel about their candidates, they very proudly are one of the first um, to go. And so can, uh, candidates have to do a lot of on-the-ground campaigning in Iowa. They have to go out and shake hands, press the flesh, as they say, you know, kiss babies, meet people. Um, and the phrase that gets used by pundits in America is that campaigns can be won or lost. They can die in an Iowa cornfield. So interesting that um, some some states are like bellwether states, so really critical in terms of um, if you win in a particular state then that or you lose, that changes the trajectory of a campaign quite significantly. Um, and it's often those early ones. Super Tuesday is an interesting um, example. So this, uh, this coming election, Super Tuesday, is going to be on the 5th of March. And that's where we have um, 16 Republican primaries and 15 Democrat primaries all happening on the same day. So that's why it's called Super Tuesday, because it's, it's such a big 
big deal that it all happened. There's so many states happening all at once, and um, that can really change the course of the election, what happens on Super Tuesday. So at the moment, we've got um, a very large number of um, individuals seeking the Republican nomination. Uh, as we have discussed previously, former President Trump, miles ahead, mm-hmm. 40 plus points ahead of his chasers, including DeSantis, um, Chris Christie, Mike, uh, Michael Pence. What's happening on the Democrat side? Because one would assume that with uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, that they will be renominated, and so that's pretty boring. What's going to happen on the Democrat? You, you know, when you say the the fifteen Democrat primaries, well, people actually go. If you're a Democrat in those states, will you actually go out and vote when it's you're just reconfirming um, President Biden? What happens there? Yeah, I suspect that there is going to be um, lower voter turnout. Um, because there is uh, another candidate who's running against Biden for the Democrats. Um, See, it's Marianne Williams. Um, We've talked about her before. She's a self-help author and former spiritual advisor to Oprah Winfrey. Um, Fun fact about her. But um, essentially the the party have have put their um, support behind Biden already um, and and um, Kamala Harris is his running mate and so the the primaries and caucuses for the Democrats are something of a foregone conclusion uh, and that's that's often the case with an incumbent president um, interesting with Biden because there are he does have quite a low approval rating even within Democrats concerns about his health as we've talked about before his age um, but but the but the DNC as a centralised um, body have said he's our man and that's why the um, they are rolling out trying to roll out their election processes for for the primaries in a slightly different fashion and order than they have done in the past because because Biden um, and his team are, are running it from the centre. So the real excitement is going to be on the Republican side, and I guess the great question is, uh, what does the Iowa, uh, sorry, what the Iowa Republican caucuses look like? Fifteenth uh, of January they kick it off, and uh, as you say, you know, small state, three million people, and it is, um, it's like the old-fashioned way of uh, um, getting votes, isn't it? Almost door to door, and it is uh, fascinating to see how former President Trump. Uh, and the candidates who are seeking to knock him off that uh, uh, post as being the, the very much front runner for 2024, how they go about campaigning in the middle of winter in Iowa uh, yeah. to get to get that support. And and, and that's course- and that's it, interestingly you 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 note that it's the middle of winter, and that's one of the reasons Iowa, the Iowan voters really need candidates to, to, to be present in the state um, in the lead up to the election because they, they're literally having to wade through snow sometimes to go and vote in the middle of January. It's, it's really cold up there and um, they are committed to the democratic process and so they turn out en masse um, to vote and so they expect their, their candidates to be there and, and to do the same. Um, exciting for the What's the Story Old Glory podcast. Um, I'm going to be there in Iowa for the Republican caucus in, on the 15th of January. It's so fun. I Sorry know, I my- can't wait. It's going to be great. You're going to be a live reporter from Iowa. I will. I'm hoping to 
be able to talk to some of the voters um, and I'll be there for a couple of days before the actual caucus itself. So hopefully get to see some of the candidates in action. Um, Can you be an observer? Can you go in and, you know, stand in a room? Yes. Uh, I thought, well, that'll be incredible. It's Yeah, and because um, although it's a sort of old-fashioned caucus, they do do it in um, in some areas, so like in Des Moines, which is the, the state capital, um, they do it in an arena. And so it's a very large venue, and they have lots of media there from around the world. And um, the people who are registered voters for their uh, political party, whether Democrats or Republicans, um, go in one line and then observers and media go in another. And there's, it's, it's very personal. It's, it's close contact. Um, and um, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. What I love about it um, is how open and transparent it is in terms of people going into these events and then essentially um, demonstrating for everyone who they support right and i find that you know okay we see this in new zealand right it's we've just had an election you'll see signs on um, individual properties uh you know i'm for labor i'm for national i'm for new zealand first i'm for greens you see that that's about the extent of it right you get um we're here you have a whole community going into a hall and everybody can see uh which which person everybody else is supporting and uh man that makes for some interesting um uh personal conversations i would think family conversations if they're split i'm sure and and what's also interesting is that um like i touched on the people that are going to vote and it is slightly different in each state again they all set their own rules but people actually register when they enroll to vote, as they do in New Zealand, you actually register for a party. So you you register as a Democrat, you register as a Republican or undecided, or a, a, if there's another option to choose from. Mem- actual membership of political parties in New Zealand is, 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 is quite low in terms of the general population. But in the States, everyone registers for, and, and unless you've registered as an undecided voter, you've essentially cast your... Um, made your political decision as to which side of the aisle you're on as soon as you enrol to vote. Of course, you don't necessarily pick who you don't determine who the individual person that you want representing you is, but you've made plain your intention in terms of which political party you support. It's fascinating that people essentially, um, they register for the political process and by registering it, they are saying, I am a Republican, I am a Democrat, or I am undecided. And so, therefore, say for example, you register. Uh, I'm 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 registering to vote, uh, and I'm registering at the same time as a Republican. Uh, so that in that sense, you know which way I'm going to vote come November. I'm mm. going to vote for a Republican candidate. But now I am registered. I am now going to go into my state uh, or into my county and uh, participate in deciding which person we from our community think should be best president, the best a candidate for Senate, the best candidate for the Congress, and on mm-hmm. it goes on, you mm-hmm. know, because so much of America is political and there are so many political roles from president all the way down to, you know, county judges, yes. they absolutely take their um, their their uh, political process seriously. And if they're a card-carrying Democrat or a card-carrying Republican, they're in the process and you're going to see it uh, 15th of January. You're going to be watching American uh, democracy in action under three feet of snow. 
yeah that's incredible. <laughs> yeah it's gonna be great and that's that's one of the reasons why i think um uh, american politics tends to appear also so entrenched from our perspective looking in is because the the parties in terms of who you support are pretty they're pretty fixed um some states that they, they refer to states as being red states and blue states so that they know for instance that the majority of the population in that state are republican supporters or that they're democrats because of that registration system the states where it can go either way the swing states get called purple states because it's a, a mix between blue and red what I find fascinating is that it ends up being a exceptionally noisy, combative process that we look at and think, goodness me, this is, this is quite uh, almost uncomfortably volatile and tribal and partisan. Mm. But that has been the nature of American politics for 250 years. It's, it's part of their psyche. You know, they broke away from the UK. They created the first... Uh, you know, the American exceptional experiment of being the true democratic um, republic, notwithstanding that, you know, um, people of colour didn't have votes, uh, women didn't have votes. But at the time, in the, in the you know, in the mid-1700s, this was quite an extraordinary thing that they were trying to develop. And they've come from that tradition. And so their, their political... Um, uh, their appetite for you know political uh, posturing and aggressive behaviour that we would find quite um, unpalatable. It's it's very very different, and I find it fascinating that when it all boils down to uh, you know next November, we already know the states that are going to vote Democrat. We already know the states that are going to vote Republican. There's this handful of purple states where all the focus will be on. Uh, where those individuals in those states will ultimately decide, is it um, you know, President Biden for a second term or probably, as the current uh, polling suggests amongst the Republicans, the Republican nominee, President Trump, for a second term. Quite in a remarkable uh, 14 months to look forward to. Yeah, it's going to be action-packed. We've got, like they say, we've got the caucuses and primaries starting in January. We've got the last um, Republican debate um, that'll be happening uh, in a, not long, in a few days actually. Um, and so January, when the when the primaries and caucuses kick off, we've got a full calendar right up until the um, the party conventions, which are in the middle of the year. So we go from um, having cold, cold primaries in the middle of winter to hot, stuffy conventions in the middle of summer. So we've got the Republican National Convention is going to be in Milwaukee in July, and then the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August. And then once those uh, the, the candidates for for each party are selected at the formally selected at the conventions, we've got the full on campaigning at the national level. The debates between the two. Um, candidates will happen between then and November and then even from November on the process doesn't end so election day 5th of November um, there's then set in time dates of when things have to happen to do with the electoral college um, to do with when those electoral votes um, get counted and between that and the inauguration day which was in the on the 20th of January and we saw in the last election how crazy things can be between the formal election and inauguration day with what happened with January 6th. And I think we'll probably unpack that a bit further in a future episode um, when there was real debate um, as to 
whether the constitution would hold um, when there was a um, Trump's team uh, saying that they didn't agree with the election results and claiming that uh, that the election was fraudulent and that it was um, invalid. Um, so what are the legal steps that have to be gone through between people casting their votes on the 5th of November and the next president getting inaugurated on the 20th of January? It, if, if it does come down to Trump and Biden again, I suspect we're going to see some very similar similar behaviour from behave, from supporters on both sides. Yeah, you get a sense that uh, 2024 is going to be one of those years in American politics. Um, you know, I think probably uh, 2000 was quite a year uh, because it became so close. Mm. Uh, remembering, of course, that, um, you know, George uh, W. Bush lost the popular vote, but won the Electoral College by the fact of winning Florida by 2,000 votes, I think, ultimately. Yeah. Reminder that how it works in America is it's a sort of winner-take-all. If you win the the state's popular vote, then you take all those delegates, which are set by um, how big the population is in that state. So you want to win California because that gives you 55, I think, uh, electoral votes on the race to 270. But that that election and that year was quite extraordinary because it literally came down to a few thousand votes in a single state. Uh, I think probably prior to that, 1968 was a year that would live in infamy in America. Uh, incredible uh, violence, riots, convention, the De Democratic Convention almost imploded with riots um, throughout the city, was held in Chicago. Uh, and um, you do get a sense that 2024 could be a year like that. I mean, you don't wish it on America, but it seems a very volatile environment over there. And if it ends up uh, Biden versus Trump, it's going to be something. Uh, and of course, we're going to have all these, uh, not only have you over there, uh, Elizabeth, for uh, one of the key moments, but we will, of course, have uh, a whole lot of guests uh, uh, and experts from America to be able to uh, assist us here in New Zealand understanding what on earth is going on. I suppose it's time to um, talk about uh, a president that we haven't heard of. Yeah, so um, in our past glory segment, um, we've, as we've said, we're talking about um, how uh, we've had listener questions come in. So this is um, uh, a question that we had from John in Dunedin, and he wanted to know about the shortest sitting president. So take it away. Who have we got? Well, his name is William Henry Harrison, uh, and uh, he was a president uh, in 1841. He was born in 1773 and died in 1841. He was a military uh, commander of some note, actually. He uh, conquered the American Indians at the Battle of Tipcanoe, uh, and he also was a brigadier uh, commander of the Army of the Northwest and won the Battle of Thames, which is actually in southern Ontario, which helped defeat the British in 1812. So he was a, he was a military hero mm -hmm. uh, and got involved in politics prior and post his military uh, career and was nominated by the Whig Party to be president uh, in 1840, in the 1840 <coughs> election. And he was the oldest elected president uh, up until Ronald Reagan, 
Wow. Uh, at the age of 67. So he, um, Which is he quite was, old for that It was very really old period. back in those days, yeah. yes. Um, he, he ran a, um, um, he was the first president, he's got a lot of firsts, this guy. He was the first president to actually go out and campaign for himself. Ah. To your point earlier about how the caucuses worked, is that you would have individuals that would go out who are uh, who were your men. It was mm-hmm. all men back then, who were your men who went out and um, uh, campaigned for you, would go to particular towns and counties and say, you know, I'm for Andrew Jackson. And uh, uh, people would um, listen to what you had to say and decide whether Andrew Jackson des- deserved their support. Mm-hmm. Well, he was the first one that went out himself. And so he campaigned and gave 20 campaign speeches. So he was the first to do that. Wow. Uh, he was very successful uh, in his speaking because he gave away free cider, hard cider, uh, <laughs> to all those who attended. Oh, and so fantastic. He was, He's got my vote. <laughs> that was, yes. This is, you know, no rules about treating or anything like that in America. Very it's like, you know. You want, to listen, you want to listen to this guy? He gives away free beer uh, so or free cider. Like Doug Burgum, um, he, he did something similar to make sure that he got to speak at the at the first Republican debate in this election. He gave away um, gift vouchers uh, so that people yes. would would say, "I'm I'm I'm polling for Burgum," so get him enough polling points to be able to speak at the at the first debate. So interestingly, some things change, some That's things stay the same. It's America. You can do whatever you want. It's all good. As long as you get it, as long as you get across the line first. And, and, so he did, and your delegates aren't too drunk on cider that they forget to vote. Yes, yes. And so they obviously weren't too drunk. He got he got nominated and uh, he won. He beat the incumbent president Van Buren, uh, two hundred and thirty four electoral votes to sixty. So quite wow. a significant electoral uh, vote victory. So he had. Um, uh, presented himself as the um, sort of a, a, a man of the people. Uh, and and I'll quote from a, a book here. It's quite funny. The Cider and Cabin campaign worked uh, and Harrison won the election. Once elected, however, the new president decided to project a different image from that of the hard-drinking commoner. Instead, he presented himself as a well-educated statesman whose inaugural address was the longest in American history. Over two and a half hours, he spoke um, uh, uh, with frequent references to Roman history. <laughs> to show he was strong and healthy, the 68-year-old refused to wear a coat or hat while driven, uh, d- delivering his speech during a snowstorm. So picture uh... this, this 1840, two-hour-long speech, um, and he's 68 and he refuses to wear a coat or a hat to give the impression of youthful vigor. I fear this isn't going to end well. No, not very well at all. He caught a cold and died of pneumonia one month, 31 days after taking office, becoming the first president to die on the job and holding the record for the shortest term. Wow. And... I don't think that record for the shortest term will ever be beaten. So his vice president then stepped in? Yes, John Tyler took over and uh, finished his term, uh, but was defeated at the next election because he wasn't particularly competent. Uh, 
largely disagreed with the Whig platforms that didn't do what uh, the people thought he was going to do uh, and was called the accidental president mm. because he was the first one to succeed uh, through being the vice president when a president died. Uh, and so uh, he sort of faded into history too. So there wow. we go. Poor President William Harrison. Harrison. President of the United States, 1841. March to April, 1841. Fascinating. Thank you. And thank you, John, for the question. Um, if uh, if we've got listeners who have further questions on the on the process that we've talked about today, or they want to request a president for us to cover in the next um, past glory segment, then please send them into us at oldglorypod at gmail.com or find us on social media, um, where, as I said, we've now got a listener base that spans the globe. So um, hopefully we'll get some questions from some of our overseas listeners. Um, so for our next episode, we've got a, a, a guest joining us from the, um, from the United States. So we've got Professor um, Stephanie Lindquist from the uh, Arizona State University, where she's a specialist in law and political science. And we're kind of going to take a sort of sideways step from talking about the presidential um, election and she's going to be talking to us about what's happened with the speakership so that's been a big deal in US politics over the last few weeks um, who gets to be speaker of the house it's a very important role constitutionally and they've had um, numerous um, people put forward uh, and it's been a bit of a, a, a an infight within the Republican Party and the different sort of factions within it as to who gets to be speaker and and what powers they will give up or 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 take with them into that role and it was it some said it was bordering on a constitutional crisis that it was taking so long for a replacement speaker to get to get selected so we're very lucky to have stephanie who's going to be able to provide some really expert insight um, into that process for us that sounds great i'm really looking forward to that uh, and and to assist as we do explaining why that role, the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States is so important. Can't wait to that. So from Asani Tauranga, thank you all so much for listening. We're loving this. I hope you're enjoying following our journey too. We've got a lot in front of us over the next 14 months or so. Lovely to have you with us. I'm Todd Muller. Uh, have a great day. And I'm Elizabeth Soule from a, a cold North Otago, Matewa. What's the Story Old Glory is written, produced, edited and presented by Elizabeth Soul and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our theme music is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. You can follow us on threads, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Email us your questions to oldglorypod at gmail.com.